We get a genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Um, and it's an interesting genealogy in that very contrary uh, to the culture of the day, we have several women listed uh, in Jesus' list of ancestors. It's a very patriarchal culture. We are a very patriarchal culture in this sense, like, you know, uh, children inherit the father's last name, right? Uh, but back in these days, it was much, much more extreme. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. This is going to work its way down to Jesus eventually. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose name was Tamar. Tamar uh, is, is uh, listed in here. Uh, she was a, a woman. Uh, and it's a very dubious story. Tamar was actually uh, the wife of one of Judah's sons, but he died. Uh, and then, as was the custom of the day, she married uh, the brother uh, but he did not treat her well, and so she actually fooled Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her by pretending to be a prostitute on the side of the road. Freaky story! Uh, but she stuck in there as an important ancestor of this guy, Jesus. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Great baby name. Aminadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You remember the story of Rahab as the Israelites were coming into the land of Canaan? Rahab uh, was, a, was a friendly gal in a walled city, and she basically uh, sort of sold out her people to the Israelites uh, because she knew that God was with the Israelites. You know what Rahab did for a living? Prostitute. Another important ancestor uh, of Jesus, uh, she, for whatever reason, had become a prostitute, probably to survive, uh, but she was a good-hearted gal who recognized godliness when she saw it, and she became one of the grandmothers of Christ. Boaz uh, uh, was her boy, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Uh, Ruth was a foreign gal. She was from Moab. The Israelites were not supposed to marry foreigners, uh, but Ruth figures in there. And this is a long-winded way of announcing that we're going to now begin a series on the book of Ruth, uh, which is a book in the Bible. Anybody read Ruth before? Ruth? Ruth? Ruth is a baby name that I think is making a comeback. We got some Ruthies out there. Um, so Ruth, uh, a grandmother of Christ. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of this fellow named King David. Uh, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, that's a very euphemistic way to tell the story. You know what happened, right? David, David sort of forcibly seduced the wife of another man, this fellow Uriah, who was a very loyal military officer in David's armies. David ended up killing Uriah because David had impregnated his wife in sort of this forcible, adulterous uh, relationship. Uh, her name was Bathsheba. A very, very bad, very violent story. And she became one of the grandmothers of Christ. Uh, it, goes, it goes down further uh, until uh, finally we get uh, to Jesus himself. Four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Why those four women of all the mothers in his genealogy? Well, because each one of them had a very 
well, kind of an ugly story to them, uh, a dubious story. Uh, and Ruth being one uh, about which we actually have a lot of detail. The book of Ruth is, is just uh, in several chapters tells the story of Ruth's inclusion into the family line uh, in, in some detail. The book of Ruth, uh, how many have read it? Read it? That's a cool story. The book of Ruth uh, is sort of the Spanish language telenovela of the Bible. That's how I would describe it. And that is, is it's a small story sort of filled with, uh, with uh, social class-driven romantic drama, which is like every Spanish language telenovela you've ever seen, right? So you're crossing social class boundaries, and, and then there are little you know, personal stories about how people come together uh, in, in love. Uh, one of the things that uh, well, in, in essence, as to boil it down, it's the story of two down-and-out women who come to live in this very small town and how they end up surviving and thriving uh, through relationships in, in that town. And one of the things that makes Ruth remarkable is that she's the ancestor of King David, uh, who is, of course, the ancestor of Christ. It's possible that when this story was written down, the compilers of the book knew that she was an ancestor of King David, who is a very important figure in Scripture, but they could not have possibly known that she was an ancestor of Christ. But the fact that we have uh, the story of this, this small woman uh, and presented in Scripture and made sacred for all time uh, is, is, is profound given that she was one of the grandmothers of Christ himself. Nobody could have planned that, right? It's just one of the ways in which the Bible is freakishly complete and coherent. Of all the women's stories in, included in the Bible out of this patriarch, patriarchal society, we had a whole book on this grandmother uh, of, of Jesus. Two of the others uh, forced into prostitution and you know, the other one was sort of raped by King David. They're, they're all sort of dubious stories. Uh, but, but all that makes the story of Christ, I think, more perfect in that it makes his story more perfectly imperfect, uh, just like Jesus himself. No human could have faked the Bible. It's a saga that fits together perfectly, coherently, and beautifully, as if it were written by a truly gifted author, except it wasn't written by... Uh, one human author. It was written over literally thousands of years across numerous generations, radically different centuries, uh, across different cultures and even different language groups, and yet it fits together in a beautifully sculpted saga. No human could have faked the Bible. There is absolutely no way that this all fits together uh, unless uh, some divine person was in charge. So let's read our scripture for the day. Uh, Ruth is a short book, just a handful of chapters, and we're just going to read an excerpt from Ruth chapter 1. So here's the background to the, the story and the drama of Ruth. Uh, there was a famine in the land of Israel. Uh, so a dad, uh, would become a, a dad, he, he, he takes off, he leaves Israel, and he goes into the land of Moab, uh, which is a territory that existed sort of to the east and the south. Of, of the land of, of Israel. And uh, he uh, has a wife, 
uh, they have a couple sons, and those sons marry Moabite women. They marry into their foreign culture, which technically was kind of a no-no for Israelites. They weren't supposed to do that uh, unless they fall prey uh, to the, the pagan idolatrous gods of the surrounding territories. But they did it anyway, and, uh, and they got a couple of good wives. Uh, but then the, the dad died, and then the two young sons died, and there were no more males in the family. Uh, there was just uh, the wife and the two daughters-in-law. Um, and that's a very vulnerable situation for women to have been in, in that culture, because it was the males that provided the, the sustenance, the, you know, the food, uh, the earning, the protection uh, for the females. Uh, so we pick it up in verse 3. Now, uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Naomi is the, the older mom. He died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, and the other Ruth. Factoid that may interest only me. Orpah is the woman that Oprah Winfrey is named after, but her, her mother uh, couldn't remember how it was spelled. True story. Uh, so Orpah and the other was Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and, and Kilion also died. Those were the two boys. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, so in other words, the famine in Israel was over, then she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So she's going to go back to Israel. Uh, she has nothing left in the land of Moab. Uh, and she starts sort of taking her two daughters-in-law in tow with her. Then Naomi, uh, she had a, a second thought. And she said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you, you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. What's going on here is that Naomi realizes that if she takes these two Moabite widows back to her little hometown in Israel, the chance of them getting married were about, were about zero because... They were foreigners, uh, and because they were other men's wives previously, they had a lot of thing, uh, things against them. And she's also thinking about her situation. It's like, what a, I don't have a very good chance of survival either. I'm not going to be able to provide for these two uh, lovely uh, young women. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back you, uh, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Nobody will provide for me either. I have no, I'll have nothing to share with you, she says. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. This is better. It is bitter for me. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She feels cursed by God, abandoned by God. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. 
But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. More prophetic thing was never spoken. And this was one of the grandmothers of Christ. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her, and they head off back to the land of Judah, end up in this little town called Bethlehem. Um, A lot of drama even packed into this little uh, introduction. Uh, Orpah uh, does not stay with Naomi, and Ruth stays with Naomi and travels with her back to Israel. You cannot criticize Orpah for leaving. This was a matter of survival. The fact is she had a better chance of surviving uh, with her own tribespeople. You know, this was life and death. Um, you know, like she was just leaving for a better job or something. I mean, she was trying to stay alive in all likelihood if she had gone with Naomi. Uh, they probably would have all perished together. Uh, so, you know, God bless her. Orpah did not do anything wrong. Uh, Naomi and Ruth travel on together, and there is a problem here to get solved. The problem is how are they going to survive? And that is the driving question of the book of Ruth. And the first answer to that question is, well, Ruth's going to commit to Naomi. That's one thing that Naomi has going for her. Ruth's commitment, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay, your people will be my people, and we will worship God together. Boom, there it is. A true turning point in world history. Ruth's decision to go with Naomi literally changed the world, right? She ends up being one of the grandmothers of of Jesus. She changed national history. was one of the ancestors of King David. But she changed world history. Because whatever you think about Jesus, you have to admit, the dude changed the world. Changed the entire world. And, you know, you go back in history and you find these little hinged decisions. And this is one of them. Ruth decides to stick with her mother-in-law. Even though there was no particular reason or obligation involved in her doing it. She just decided to stick with uh, her mother-in-law. This is a picture of uh, an uncommonly loving relational commitment. You know, that's all it is. It's about allowing someone to have a claim on your life. Ruth basically said to Naomi, you have a claim on my life. You have a claim on my whole life. That's just how it's going to be between me and you, gal. We're homies. We're peeps. Uh, And Ruth did this not out of some socially enforced obligation. Why did she do it? Well, I love, I guess. You know, the story doesn't talk a lot about that, but I guess she just really loved Naomi. This This is not wisdom, right? This is not Ruth being all wise and insightful and clever uh, because... You know, it's not like they're analyzing the situation and trying to do what's prudent. This is not duty. Ruth had no duty to Naomi. In fact, if anything, she probably had more of a duty to her own people. 
and, and should have followed Orpah in leaving. This is not about morality. It's not about right and wrong because it would not have been wrong for Ruth to leave. It would have been totally understandable. You know, you could justify it in any number of ways. Naomi might have had a better chance solo, you know, because some kind family is more likely to adopt in one suffering grandma than two mouths to feed. You know, you, you could have argued both sides of this case, so this is not a moral issue. This is simply voluntary goodness. This is nothing but human decency. That's all it is. It's just a person choosing to bond to another person. And it is difficult for me to express how deeply moving I find this moment in Scripture. I'm tempted to say uh, that this sort of interaction is the finest, most noble thing in all of human experience. I'm tempted to say that. Actually, I just said it. Um, I, I think, I think this, is, this is the height. And what would you call it except, I don't know, decency? Um, I say that uh, for a couple of personal reasons. Uh, there are personal reasons that I find it mo- more moving. One, in my life, a lot of, you know, you know a little bit about my life story, but I've always benefited from what I call family where I find it. I am who I am today. I might be alive uh, today because along the way, there were people who just decided to be family to me even though they had no obligation to do that. You know, I'm a believer because I had some babysitters when I was a little boy who totally adopted me. He just adopted our whole family. Uh, And I could tell you uh, about that as well and stayed committed to me the rest of my life. And they were just babysitters across the street. But they just decided that they were going to love me. And throughout my life, you know, the Lord has stationed these people along the way. You know, a coach who decided that he really needed to pay attention to me or a teacher who needed to accomplish something in my life. Uh, my life has been very itinerant. You know, I've had family members who loved me, but I lived with different ones at different times in different places, you know. And I've just benefited a lot from family where I find it. I know how profoundly important that sort of thing can be. Secondly, I've had a lot of the opposite experience where people have decided not to bond uh, with, with me. Uh, for example, this, this is my biggest challenge as a Jesus follower and a minister. I try hard to commit to every person who comes into what I call my ministry sphere. If you kind of walk into my life and you're in a place where I can minister to you, I try to treat that like a big deal. I try to really commit as much as I can in whatever way I, I can to everyone who shows up and to give and to not be casual or cavalier uh, about that. And pretty, people pretty much expect that from me. Uh, you know, within a few weeks of walking into Blue Water, people expect me to take care of them. And I don't mean to be snide about that at all. I mean, that's kind of why I'm here. Uh, and people often feel, you know, quite, quite comfortable uh, for that. And they feel totally okay about asking me to invest uh, in their life. Um, and this is uh, very often a great joy to me. I mean, that's kind of the joy of ministry. I get the privilege of blessing lots of people uh, who just sort of walk into my sphere. However, not too many people return that sort of commitment to me, I have found uh, in life. 
Um, and that is the hardest thing uh, there is, uh, hardest regular sort of thing there is in, in, in my life. People take what they need or what they want from me, which is appropriate, because that's what I'm there for. Then they feel totally okay about moving on or just sort of not having any further contact or commitment with me uh, when they think that their margin of return is lessening. People treat me as a consumable, as sort of a consumer item. I think a lot of people treat church as a consumer item. And sometimes they, they sort of have to behave in that way because life is complicated, right? Not every relationship can be lifelong. There are all sorts of pressures and callings and directions and things like that. But I find very often people just sort of leave my sphere or leave my community or leave my family on a consumer basis because they just don't feel like they're getting a good deal anymore. So, so they're gone. And that happens uh, many dozens of times every year, hundreds of times over the six-year life of Blue Water Mission. Often people just sort of take off without telling me I might be actively engaged in trying to solve something in their life, and then I realize I haven't seen them for a few weeks, and it turns out, you know, they're, they've moved on, and not so much uh, as, as a phone call. And I try to be philosophical about it, and I encourage many of you to be philosophical about that sort of thing, because I know that many of you living the ministry life have gone through exactly the same thing. True? Happens all the time to those of us who try to give in a serious and loving and committed way to people whom the Lord brings through our life. And indeed, many of us have gone through even this sort of lack of commitment experience in ways that are more shocking and far more fundamental than the sort of experience that I'm talking about. Many of you have had a spouse abandon you. Uh, many of you had a parent or parents abandon you. Uh, many, many of us have had our employers manifest a profound lack of commitment to us, despite what might have been years of full days of service, as if our job and our work doesn't mean anything. Many, many of us have had that experience. Many, many of us have had important friends just, just drop us for who knows what reasons. Happens all the time. Uh, and of course, you know, just to say it, I think God goes through this a lot because I think God has committed to all of us rather fully and yet very few people return that commitment to God, and those of us who do return that commitment don't always do it with a full heart. This is just sort of the nature of things in this life, it seems to me. And, and in this day especially, I think there are so few social enforcements of relational commitment, you know, in our society. Uh, you're going to break, break your marriage vows? No biggie. We have entire industries built up to make that as painless as possible for you. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's necessary to separate. Life is complicated. Uh, but we have made that separation rather easy, convenient, meaningless as a society. Um, you're going to lay off employees, or are you going to change jobs without warning? 
hey, no one commits to jobs and no employer commits to employees. We all know that those relationships don't really count, right? Right? That's it. We, it's the market, baby. It's not about relationships. And that's the way that it works. Churches, churches, I think, as I said, are often seen as consumer products. It's a consumer service. Uh, many churches are even designed that way. They're sort of designed along a, a, a customer service ethic. Uh, so what you do is you shop for a church that works for you, and usually this means you shop for one that makes you feel the best or one that you think serves you the best. And if it stops being exciting or if it stops serving you as well as you think it should or as well as it used to in the past, then it's, it's not like a church is a family or anything, right? You just move on. You just move on. That's how church works. And uh, even the so-called pastorate, right, um, is is often professionalized instead of personalized in denominational uh, Christianity. Pastors are sort of, they're employed, and then they are assigned to flocks. It is, it is a deployment, right? It's not personal. It's not personal. It's, it's a job that you do. You're not, you know, committed to the community. You're committed to the calling, not the community. Um, and that generates, again, life is complicated, so there's parts of that which can be really appropriate, but it sort of fosters an ethic of church that has nothing to do with relationships, real relational uh, commitment, and then that creates sort of a ministry culture. Uh, I, uh, I frequently deal with all of these really zealous young ministers. They want to be missionaries or justice uh, missionaries. We get a lot of young people contacting Blue Water. Uh, they want to come work with our justice programs because they want to bring the kingdom. And I say to them, if you come, you'd better build. I want you to be relational. I want you to build the family. Because there are a lot of people out there that want the life of ministry, but don't really want to share their life in any permanent or significant way. And speaking of family, families aren't what they used to be, are they? We don't live our life according to our family. We go where life takes us and we don't necessarily go where our family is. And again, life is complicated, right? There's nothing necessarily wrong with any of this, but you put it all together, and there are not many social enforcements of relational commitment. And, you know, and I have to you know, confess full disclosure that I myself have left jobs. Who hasn't? Uh, I myself have left churches on occasion. Uh, my family relationships, even now, are very far-flung. Uh, there aren't many of us, and the ones that there are are all over the place, and those relationships are sometimes strained in different ways. So I'm extremely, extremely sympathetic to the difficulties of relational commitment because, let's just say it again, life is complicated. We all know that. So no guilt or judgment involved. But I have at least learned this in my life with Jesus, that relationships are the most important thing in the world. And I think we just have to be very clear about that. They should be the most important thing in our lives, however it works out. And therefore, I try to make relationships wholeheartedly, to break relationships very rarely, and to simply honor them 
as much as I possibly can. I have relationships in which I feel uh, I give more than my partner does. I have relationships in which I feel that I receive more than I give, in which my friends are better friends to me than I am to them. Um, but I try to honor all of those relationships as much as I possibly can. Uh, and while this is dynamic and complicated and often hard to manage and hard to get right, relationships are hard to get right. If I hear any amens. Um, relationships are all definitely the thing that shape my life more than any other thing. And I think that's the way that it should be. If you're in my life, then I really try to have you in my life and to make a, a big deal on that. You know what I mean when I say that? I may not even know you well. God knows I may not satisfy your expectations of me because relationally I'm a fairly limited guy. I know, everybody gasp. I'm really introverted. I have very low relational energy. Um, you know, for a limited guy, I have way too many relationships in my life. Um, you know, so probably not satisfy your expectations, but I will not throw away what we have. Whatever it is that we have, it's important to me. It's the most important thing in my life as a category. I will try hard to let you shape my life. I will let you shape my life, my whole life. And, and that's it. <clears throat> that's the thing that I long to hear from people all the time. I want people to say to me, Jordan, you shape my life. Uh, and not just by the good things that you give me, Jordan, uh, but also by the burdens that my relationship with you cause for me. Jordan, you are more than a supplier. You're more than a convenience. You're part of my life no matter what. That's what I long to hear. And I say that because I think probably you long to hear it in one way, shape, or form as well. That's the thing. That really is the heart of life together. And there is no life apart from life together. Uh, and if you've never had that experience, if you've never received a relational commitment, and if you've never given that sort of voluntary relational commitment, then you are truly impoverished. You have not really lived as a full human yet. You might have plenty of experiences, but you're missing out on a lot of life. Um, hardly, hardly anyone or anything else in the world is saying it, so I will say it. You need to commit to people. You need to voluntarily commit to people in a profound way. You need to do that. You need to do it as a human, and you definitely need to do it as a follower of Jesus. We need to commit to people. This has to be a thing in your life. It's just, it's just decency. So I'm often shocked and deeply hurt by the casualness with which people treat relationship, relationship with me and mine. But let's be honest. You know, obviously, you can't commit on a roof-type level to everyone in your life, can you? Right? You just can't go around doing that. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you go, I will go. Uh, your people will be my people, except for these people over here. Uh, right? Life is complicated. Let's just say it again. So, um, you know, we're all, we're all just trying. 
you know, you don't blame Orpah for leaving. You don't blame her. It's perfectly justifiable. Perfectly good. The question is, why did Ruth stay, though? That's the question of the book. Why did Ruth stay? And, and, and I don't know entirely. Um, she, maybe she took family very seriously. She married into this family. She was in the family. That's just the way it worked for her. Or she loved her husband so much that, doggone it, she was going to honor his mom. Maybe that was, was it. Maybe she's just a really compassionate person. Maybe she just really felt for Naomi and was willing to die trying to see that she got by. Uh, maybe, maybe that was it. But, but whatever might be said, this I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, Ruth was a good person. Right? Whatever we might speculate her motives are, we can say this with 100% certainty. Ruth was a good person. Ruth was decent through and through. And, and I, think, I think maybe that's the best answer. The book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is really about someone being a good person. And there are some other good people that, that show up. Uh, Ruth's act of uncommon decency changed world history forever. And that's just interesting to know that people being decent to one another can change the entire planet. I like knowing that. And it all just makes me pray, oh God, make me a good person. If it can be that powerful, help me to be a good, decent person relationally. Because I want to change the world, you know? And the way that you do it is, is relationships. That's really what it boils down to. And throughout the rest of the book of Ruth, uh, this is, this is going to be what we see. We're going to see that the whole book is really an exploration of what you might call the power of decency, of simple, solid goodness. Nothing fancier than that. People being good to people. That's it. I'm just telling you right now, that's the whole point of uh, the book uh, of Ruth. But then there's the fact of the book of Ruth, you know, the arc of the story of Ruth, the place of Ruth in the arc of the larger story of God and humanity of Christ and, and, and all of us. Uh, that encourages us to believe that this sort of decency, this simple solid goodness, this commitment to people, this giving others a claim on your life is totally worth it. Totally worth it. It's a big deal. Uh, so I sort of read this introduction. Uh, I cheated. I read ahead in the book. I read all the way to the end. Um, but even now, um, I have to ask myself, am I a good person? And maybe that's a question that you could ask yourself as we start the sermon series on Ruth. Are you a good person? Are you a decent person? By which, of course, I mean, are you a good person relationally? Are you, are you a decent person uh, relationally? Now, life is complicated, so I think that, that question is actually kind of hard to answer in a simplistic way. Yes? Life is, is complicated, but one way of evaluating whether or not you're a good, decent person is, is by asking yourself, have you committed to people? Have you voluntarily committed to people in a way that has shaped your life? That you can answer. You can take a look at your life. Um, it's hard to know exactly what it would look like because life is complicated, but clearly, 
here are some things that, that we could share. Put this up on, on the big board. Do not be a bohemian. Do you know what a bohemian is? I'm old enough to know this word. Uh, but, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was a big deal. A bohemian is someone who lived a very, quote-unquote, free lifestyle, right? Uh, you just sort of, you took relationships where they came. It's a free love sort of thing, a free experience sort of thing. That, that, that term free love just cracks me up because it sounds so good and is just so outright evil. I'm just going to give love freely and not expect anything in return, which means, you know, I'm going to be in, into you for a while but then leave and it's cool, right? Um, no, love is not that kind of free. Uh, it frees you because it, it, it burdens you. But, you know, don't just have experience in life. You know, don't just pursue experiences. Have people. Don't just travel around relationally. No, root yourself in someone or someone's. Right? Whatever that looks like for you, you have to have that. Uh, don't be a consumer. Don't treat relationships or communities as if they are consumer products. You know, it's fine to receive, it's fine to give, but don't throw away. Um, community is not recyclable. It has a life arc, uh, and you should value it uh, while, while you're here. And you don't be what I call a, a casual cruiser. Uh, and I say this particularly to, to young people who are excited about the ministry life. Don't just kind of cruise around looking for God experiences. Build a family somewhere for Pete's sake. That is the building block of the kingdom, and it is the building block of world history, as we see in, in the book of Ruth. And if you need one practical tip, I will just leave you for this. This will be our last thing. Um, create a relationship. Commit to a relationship in which you give more than you ought to give and do it for a good long while. So human and so godly. Good food for thought? Yeah? Let's pray. Uh, we love the excitement, Lord. Uh, we love the miracles. Uh, we love um, the energetic life change, uh, but we commit ourselves, Lord, to, to family in you. Life is complicated, Lord, uh, but, but uh, we will go where you go, and your people will be our people. We are willing to have a father in heaven, and so we are willing to have brothers and sisters on earth. On this Father's Day, Lord, I pray that you would make us a people of, of relational commitment, that you would make us family builders, that you would make us friends, neighbors in that classic sense, that you would root and ground us in love both in Christ and in the body of Christ. Uh, Holy Spirit, please do that work uh, that you do Please go into our hearts and uh, soothe us in those places where we've been relationally wounded and inspire us in those places where we've been relationally uh, lazy or overly casual. 
we have treated what is meaningful as if it were meaningless. Grow us up. I pray, Father, that, that uh, the Blue Water Mission uh, as a people of God would be a truly decent people. Help me, Lord, with my relational weaknesses. Uh, I pray that uh, they would not color the body, but that together uh, you would create relational strength that really transcends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.